this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verses 1 to 4. Just a bit further on in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verses 1 to 4. That's embarrassing, it's my phone. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Could you time it any better? Okay, excellent. Now I've got to find the verse. Where are we going to read? Okay, <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Okay, now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Thank you, Liz. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Wal, if we haven't met. I remember when I was a student minister at a church in Ryde, and uh, then uh, in the early morning, 8 o'clock service, uh, it was fully robed, and we were doing prayer book, uh, Lord's, Lord's Supper, and um, the minister who was there, his mobile phone went off just as he was reading through the Ten Commandments. Um, but his ringtone was less subtle than what we just heard. He had, like, the old... Um, they're like kind of Warner Brothers or Looney Tunes that do 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 and so he's but he just kept a poker face he did not move a muscle as he just kept reading through the prayer book service and then in the next hymn he quietly went out the back and turned his phone off I thought that was very well done uh, anyway we've all been caught out on that I'm on airplane mode so you will not be able to catch me out on that um it's really good to to be with you again uh, and thank you for being here today in the rain that is absolute devotion well done uh, it's fantastic to be here, and especially as we tackle this last topic in the series we've called Encapsulate, which you're probably across by now, that idea that we are seeking to encapsulate, to sum up what we would love to become more and more uh, the marks of our church, with God's help, what we would love to become uh, characterised by if we were a more mature and Christ version of ourselves. I've loved, uh, at times... Um, the opportunities that I've had to engage with people who've kind of reflected with me after hearing a particular sermon. I think on the first week I shared with you that idea of the alphabetized list, A to Z, and thinking about the things that you're thankful for, and the, the photo that someone had sent me the next week of themselves at a cafe with a coffee and a Bible and a list, and they're filling it out. A few weeks later, um, I, I gave away uh, some of those books, and I'm so glad they all went. And um, the, the uh, who was it, Rico Tice, Honest Evangelism, and I got a photo not long after that of someone on a ferry, and there was the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House, and there was their book open, and they were reading it, and I got a note from this week saying, I finished the book, it's great, I'm going to hand it to someone in my Bible study group, that's awesome. Um, at our 8 o'clock service this morning, uh, we were quite small, there was just five of us, but one of the ladies at that congregation uh, has been really kind of challenged, and I think uh, she's found really stimulating that idea that we are brothers and sisters, that we are family in Christ. And um, she's mentioned it, uh, you know, a couple of times, and I, I heard her this morning, she was in the foyer, and one of the other men from eight o'clock walked in, and she greeted him with the words, <laughs> she greeted him with the words, hey, Bross. <laughs> and because I talked with her about it, I knew what she meant. She was thinking, like, the plural of brothers, like Grace Brothers, and it was Grace Bros. And, but he was in the singular, he was just alone, and so it just didn't work. And I needed to kind of interpret for her that, and for him, that she just meant, hello, bro. And, and even that is not the typical way we greet each other at eight o'clock. Um, anyway, so we navigated that confusion, and uh, not long after, uh, his wife walked in, 
uh, she was coming a little bit behind and she said, hello, sis. And that kind of landed just as uncertainly in that context. So, but just the fact that she, for her, that's become very significant, the idea that, that we are brothers and sisters and um, that's really struck her. And so I think through this series, it's been really lovely hearing how people have, have been kind of struck by God's word and, and God willing, may we keep being changed by God's word as we think about what he calls us to be and who he calls us to be. And today our topic is that we would be a church that excels in the grace of giving. Um, and before anyone starts worrying that this is perhaps just a backdoor way of speaking with you about our church budget or offertory growth targets, it's not, I assure you of that. Uh, in part because there's already been a couple of occasions this year where we've tried to share that information with you. We had a finance update earlier on, we've had our AGM. Uh, in part because I'm fairly convinced that if we get this kind of generosity bit right, then apart from the issue of kind of public accountability, which is very important, well, there probably won't be much need to talk about this topic at all except maybe for how we might give to support even more ministries elsewhere. Uh, but most of all, that's not going to be part of our talk today because I'm absolutely convinced that things like church budget and offertory growth targets or anything like that, those matters are ultimately of far less concern to God than the basic matter of our wholehearted discipleship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think as you read through the New Testament, that is absolutely where any of our talk about wealth and possessions and money should go. Uh, the reason God cares about these things is, is not really because he cares about our money. After all, it's not as if he has any need of it. But he does care about our hearts. And he longs that our devotion would be first of all to him. It's just that money and wealth are so often presented to us in the Bible as really the great rival to the true and living God for the affection of our hearts and for the service of our time and our talent and for the, the object of our confidence about the future. And so probably you, know, you might be familiar, in the Sermon on the Mount, no less, Jesus says, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust, they can't get to it and thieves can't get in there. Because wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be as well. And, and just after that, he says even more confronting words, I think. He says, no one can serve both God and money. You're either going to love the one and you'll hate the other, or you'll be de despise the one and be devoted to the other. But it's just a fundamental choice here, Jesus says. And so even just from those two passages, I hope we can begin to see just how important this topic is for us whether we are already disciples of Jesus or whether we are would-be disciples of Jesus, this is a crucial topic for us to think about together. It's much more about what's going on inside our chests, if I can put it that way, than whatever's in our hip pocket. Now, aside from the uh, verses I've already mentioned, there are lots of passages we could turn to in order to be trained uh, for godliness with our money. One of the most delightful, though, is that short passage from Mark chapter 12, that Liz read for us before. Uh, delightful because it's short and it's clear and it's simple. Delightful because the hero of the story is not the disciples and certainly not the religious leaders, but this nameless, elderly, vulnerable, godly woman. Uh, just as the Gospels so often use these kind of minor characters, they just pass in and out of the story, you kind of blink and you miss them. 
So often it's these minor characters that show us what godly faith looks like in action. Uh, But delightful most of all, I think, because the whole passage, both the event itself and the conclusion Jesus draws from it, is just soaked through in the grace of the gospel. Uh, The scene is is clear enough. Jesus is sitting in the temple precincts and he's watching the people come and go and we're told that there's many wealthy people there who put their money into the temple treasury and then there was a poor widow who came up and she just put in two small copper coins, barely worth a couple of cents. And Jesus called his disciples together and he says to them in verse 43, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all of the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And the question I've been wrestling with this week is, why does Jesus make this observation to the disciples? Why does he make this a teaching moment? Not so much why does he make the conclusion, but why does he want to point it out to the disciples? What insight is he trying to give them What principle does he want them to understand? Do you want to maybe just take 30 seconds and bounce that with the person next to you? See if you can come up with an answer. I wonder what you came up with. Uh, have you got ideas on that? Um, I suspect uh, one of the things that going, that's going on, I mean, you know, when we read the Bible, we, we want to read the Bible in context. So you want to look at a passage and figure out what's going on around it. And in chapter 12, there's a lot of kind of verbal stouches going on with the religious leaders. And, and the religious leaders are so often concerned with kind of the external appearance of godliness rather than the, the kind of genuine substance. And I'm sure there's probably something going on with that, the contrast between them and, and the widow and, and she, her just genuine devotion. That's all substance, even though it may not be very outwardly appearing. And no one would have even noticed it, perhaps, if Jesus hadn't drawn attention. Although I don't think we should push that too far because actually the comparison Jesus makes is between the, the widow and the wealthy, not the widow and the religious leaders, And he kind of calls the disciples together and they have not really been on view anywhere else in chapter 12. And so there's a part of me that thinks this is a bit of a unique moment. There's something going on here. And and you might like to tell me whether you think this is persuasive or not later on. Uh, But the the conclusion that I've, I've come to this week is that really the main thing Jesus is trying to teach them, which they could probably never know unless he pointed it out to them, just as we could probably never know it unless it was pointed out to us as well, because it's not visible merely on the outward appearance of things. Uh, The main thing Jesus is trying to teach them is what true generosity looks like. 
Um, I, I think he's trying to give them a benchmark, if you like, by which generosity, as God regards it, can be accurately assessed. And the stunning implication of Jesus' words is that generosity, as God regards it, has got virtually nothing to do with a particular amount of money that has been given and virtually everything to do with one's capacity to give. And so the reason that the widow's two copper coins can be said to be more than the money that's been given by the wealthy is because they have given comfortably without any sense, it seems, of real sacrifice, whereas she has given out of her poverty everything, even all that she had to live on. Now, in this way, it's a lot like uh, something that Paul says to the Corinthians in another passage uh, that we didn't read um, about the churches in Macedonia. And, um, and he writes to them and he's, he's talking to the Corinthians about the Macedonians and he, this is how he describes an act of giving that they have done. He says, now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. It's very striking, isn't it? I've tried to consider, are there other examples that I'm missing? There may be, you might be able to help me see that. But... um, You know, here are two, I I think, shining examples of generosity in the New Testament, and they both come out of this context of extreme poverty. But I think for that very reason, they both point us in the same direction, which is that generosity, as God defines it, is less about actual dollars and cents in, in any absolute terms, and much more about capacity and opportunity. Now, from that, I reckon we ought to be able to draw at least five conclusions. First of all, most obviously, I suppose, if we would want to test the generosity of our giving, uh, we should do that not by considering what we are giving, but by considering that from which we are giving. That which we have to give, our capacity, if you like. Uh, For it may be that we are giving a lot and yet still not be giving generously. On the flip side, we may be giving very generously, even though we're giving the modern equivalent of a couple of copper coins. But if we want to test the generosity of our giving, we have to consider not what we are giving, but that from which we are giving. Uh, Second, generosity, therefore, is obviously something that all God's people are able to pursue, no matter their financial circumstance. As far as God is concerned, both the widow and the wealthy alike can pursue generosity and they can seek to excel in the grace of giving. All of God's people can share in this. Third, when we give, therefore, it really is a matter of our own devotion to God and our own personal discipleship to the Lord Jesus. I think for me this is one of the most striking things about the scene in Mark 12. Um, You might not think this, again, come and tell me later, but for me, there is a part of me that almost wants Jesus just to spring to his feet and rush over to the woman and kind of intervene. And, you know, just surely his compassionate concern for her well-being means that he just won't let her endanger herself like this. Um, By making this contribution of all that she has to live on, surely she must hold on to it. I mean, that's kind of what I want Jesus to do, but he doesn't do that. 
Instead, he commends her and he honours her willingness to give. Presumably because he knows that she has given it in loving devotion to God and far be it from him to reject a gift so given. Likewise, the Apostle Paul with the Macedonian churches. If he's got any pastoral instincts in him at all, I kind of want him to to jump in and and say to the Macedonian churches, dear brothers and sisters, I know your circumstance. I know your poverty. You can sit this one out. Others will be able to provide what is lacking. Don't put yourself at risk in this way, but he doesn't do that. He commends them. And he honours their gospel understanding that to serve the Lord's people in this way is just an exceedingly great privilege. They pleaded for it. Uh, Perhaps we might also think of the woman in the Gospels, you know, who comes with that alabaster jar of expensive perfume and she comes to anoint Jesus. And the disciples saw what was happening. They had all kinds of instincts in them about how such a valuable resource could be better put to use. And But Jesus doesn't reject what she does. He accepts it and he commends her and he honours her because he knows that what she's doing, she's doing in devotion to him and far be it from him to reject a gift so given. But you see, in every situation that I've just kind of mentioned, there is a, a sort of reckless living going on, isn't there? A kind of recklessness towards the self. A recklessness where the value of things is no longer understood from a merely human point of view, but is now considered from the standpoint of loving devotion to God and of wholehearted discipleship to the Lord Jesus. It's a way of life that really can only be lived by a person who knows the God, who loves his people with a jealous love, and who holds his people dear in his heart. And who regards their needs as one of his most precious priorities. And who meets their needs with a faithfulness that is relentless. It's only when you know that God that you could embrace this kind of reckless living, isn't it? And all of this comes because of the grace that is given through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Fourth, in this matter of giving and of pursuing generosity, God, in his grace to us, has granted an extraordinary breadth of individual freedom. Uh, For me, this too is one of the remarkable things we find in the New Testament's teaching about money. Uh, It's actually something that we don't find in the New Testament's teaching about money, namely a command. In fact, if we read through 2 Corinthians 8, one of the things Paul explicitly says to them is, I am not writing you a command. He just refuses to engage on this matter with the Corinthians by such a means. I suspect that for many of us, deep down, we we can in some ways find that a bit frustrating. A a command would be maybe a little bit simpler, easier, more straightforward, just clear the air and, and... But you see, the tone of the New Testament is just much, much freer and it's so full of grace towards us and... And God gives us freedom here. So Acts chapter 11, for example, a prophet named Agabus, uh, he comes down to Antioch, which is where Paul and Barnabas and a bunch of believers are, and he he comes to Antioch, and through the Holy Spirit, he predicts that there's going to be a famine across the entire Roman world. and, And we find out that the disciples 
as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. Now, this is the collection that I think Paul's talking about in 1 and 2 Corinthians. He also mentions it in Romans, possibly Galatians. Uh, But in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, this is how he kind of signals the individual freedom that is there. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do on the first day of every week. Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. It's just each one of you work this out according to your circumstances. In 2 Corinthians, if we were to keep reading into chapter 9, he says it even more astonishingly, I think. Each one of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not under compulsion. Do you see the pattern? Just again and again, this is a matter where God has given us great individual freedom. Each one of us is to assess our own needs and our own opportunities and our own capacity and each one of us is then to respond to God as we are able. None of us is answerable to each other for these things. None of us should feel proud if our giving is more than another. None of us should feel shame if our giving is less than another. We've each got individual circumstances This is between us and the Lord. And so like many behaviours in the Christian life, I think we can underestimate how much our giving is actually, you know, much more about the vertical than it is about the horizontal. Uh, That is, it's about our relationship with God and his generosity towards us and our gratitude to him and our our worship of him. Uh, On this side of the cross... Jesus' suffering for us. Our standard for thinking about generosity, it just can't be captured in a command. Instead, it is defined by the incomparable generosity of Christ, who, though he was rich, yet became poor, so that we, who by nature are poor spiritually, might be made gazillionaires spiritually. And so the expectation in some ways of the New Testament is not that we'll kind of be pondering, well, what's the minimum I should be doing here? But rather we might seek out almost a kind of new maximum of what we could give. And so I'm sure, I hope you've heard me say this before, but I think an implication of all that is if we find ourselves giving, uh, whether to God or to others, whether to support the gospel ministry or to care for the poor, if we find ourselves giving under compulsion and, and, and not doing it cheerfully, then really, truly, perhaps we ought to consider reducing our giving uh, to the point where we can give cheerfully. I, I just think we need to pay attention to the fact that God pays attention to our hearts and God loves a cheerful giver. And so if we're not giving cheerfully, perhaps we ought to cut back to the point that we are that would delight God. You think, why does God delight in, in a kind of generosity? Is it not just because he's generous? You think about Genesis 1 and 2, that splendid create, this splendid world that he made, so, so rich in, in life and, and teeming and, and abundant in every way. And, and it was all kind of laid on a plate by the time he made the man and the woman in his own image and he put them there and 
just look at the provision that he gave to them and it was so generous and you think about Israel going into the promised land and they were going into a land flowing with milk and honey and they were going into to places where there were vineyards that they hadn't planted and there were cities that they hadn't built and and it was just full it was just such a generous gift that God gave them and if you were to do a search this week on the word riches in the New Testament and again and again it is to do with the gospel and what God has done for us in Christ it's the riches of his mercy and the riches of his grace and his incomparable riches in Christ and God is a generous God so he loves generosity in his people so we give cheerfully uh, although I, I do remember the pastoral advice of a minister years ago he said to me look if we are going to wait until we feel cheerful about our giving before we start giving we may be waiting a long time and in fact the joy of giving may be learned best in the doing of it and I found that helpful advice back then as I still find it helpful advice now but bottom line God has granted us just an amazing breadth of freedom uh, and grace each to respond to him as we have opportunity however finally we, we must recognize the deep challenge of the Bible's teaching on this topic uh, particularly in light of the circumstances in which we read it as 21st century Christians on the lower North Shore of Sydney. Because, uh, you know, for Sarah and I as parents, uh, one of the things we often are trying to help our sons understand about their place in the world is that they just do live in one of the wealthiest parts of one of the wealthiest cities in one of the wealthiest countries in the whole of human history. I just, that's incontestable, isn't it? I know we can all think of people who are wealthier. We know that as well. But just in the grand scheme of things, that's a reality. Now, all this is from God. He is the one, Acts 17, we read a few weeks ago. He is the one who appoints times and seasons in which we all live and move and kind of have our being. So that's, that's all from God. But if what we've seen from Mark 12 and, and the Corinthian letters is true, that generosity, as God regards it, is measured chiefly by opportunity and capacity, then we, we just have to feel the weight of responsibility that we have as people to whom God has given so much opportunity and so much capacity. Uh, Jesus himself said, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. And of course, above all, we need to remember that our wealth is not just material but it's also spiritual just as the poverty in so many parts of the world is not only material but is also spiritual and just millions upon millions who need to learn about the kingdom of God and they need to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ and this too needs to shape our thinking about financial generosity well, uh, let me finish by giving what I hope will be two, kind of very, uh, three uh, practical pastoral helps. Um, discipline, uh, decision and devotion. I apologise. It's just hard not to think in such structures when you get used to preaching. Anyway, we'll run with it. Discipline. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, we read before, um, you know, Paul teaches the Corinthians uh, what he taught the Galatians to do, which is on the first day of every week, set aside the portion of money in keeping with their income, saving it up so that when Paul came, no collections would have to be made. 
in other words, he wanted them to be proactive rather than reactive, and I suspect this is an area where we can easily find ourselves being more reactive than proactive, but, but that's the goal, uh, to be disciplined rather than disorganised. This morning at 8 o'clock, one of the other things that happened, you know, we still have those giving envelopes. You might be familiar with this, organisations like CMS or a mission organisation, things like that, they, they can often provide envelopes, and it's really just 1 Corinthians 16 in practice, the idea is that you get an envelope for each week and you just put some money aside and then slowly you, you, you gather up your, your contribution and then you can give it. And, uh, and so that one of them found them in the cupboard and they were trying to figure out should we be giving these out to each other because some of them use that at 8am. And lots of people uh, find it easier to do things like set up their giving electronically online, all that kind of stuff. But there, there's just a principle. There's a very practical benefit in what Paul's talking about because giving regularly may be one of the easiest ways to give more generously because did you notice the logic he said set aside every week save it up and then when I come we won't have to do any more collections it, it just seems that a portion given regularly seems to amount to more in the long run a more generous gift if I can put it that way than kind of a big lump sum given once in a blue moon and so there's a discipline here that Paul speaks about and for some of us, a, a way of growing the generosity of our giving may simply be to grow the regularity of our giving. The specifics of Paul's instructions to the Corinthians may need tweaking for us. Uh, most of us probably find it easier to think in kind of monthly patterns rather than weekly patterns or, or maybe year by year. Uh, but brothers and sisters, one way we can grow in this area of godliness is just to set aside some time consider our income and, and decide what we can give so that we can give prayerfully and generously and with discipline. Uh, I know that many of us have already done this, but perhaps some of us haven't. And if we haven't, let's allow God's word to challenge us in this matter. Second decision, uh, which is simply to say that this is an area of Christian living where it's probably possible for us to do a lot of talking without then taking any serious action or making any significant change. And we might have really good intentions, but if we don't get around to actioning those, they just remain intentions. And there is a place for careful and prayerful consideration. And I think that comes out of 1 Corinthians 16. There's a thoughtfulness that should be there. But um, if our delay is really just a product more of kind of a lukewarmness towards Christ rather than careful and prayerful consideration, uh, then it's likely, I think, that we've probably got some repentance to do. And again, I do think there's a, a practical help here, and lots of you will have worked this out, I'm certain of it, but one of the 8AMers this morning was saying, you know, like at Christmas time, you just get bombarded with requests to give to different organisations. How do you make decisions about that? And we talked about that for a while, but again, one of the thoughts of being deliberate and being proactive rather than reactive is that freedom to then go, actually, I've, I've really considered my giving carefully already and I want to make thoughtful, long-term patterns and decisions here. And so uh, here's an opportunity. Well, yes, I, I will be able to give to that or no, I won't be able to give to that. But there's, there's a thoughtfulness that underlies that rather than just a kind of reactivity in us. And so getting to decision is important. Because third of all, remember that all of this is really to be a, a product of our loving devotion to God and our discipleship to the Lord Jesus, just as he was wholeheartedly devoted to our good. And that verse from 2 Corinthians, just such a beautiful distillation of the gospel, he was rich 
and he became poor for us. He didn't just sympathise with the poor, he became poor. Even to death on a cross, poor. So that we, by nature spiritually impoverished, might be made immensely wealthy. And if you've heard this talk today and deep down, you know that you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. There's a part of me that almost wants to say, skip the rest of the talk, just press delete, hold on to this verse, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and, and dwell on it in the week ahead. Consider it carefully. Consider what it means in general. Consider what it means for you that Christ would have become poor, that you could be made rich. But if by grace you are already a follower of Jesus Christ, and I know that's many of us, I don't want you to delete the verse and hold on to the talk. I want you to hold the, verse, the, the talk under the umbrella of that verse. Because that's really the kind of great uh, canopy under which any of our thinking about money ought to come. Because in Christ we find a generosity that just outstrips the widow in Mark 12. And it outstrips the Macedonian churches in 2 Corinthians 8. And it, we find in Christ a, a recklessness towards his own safety that would take him to the cross out of his devotion to God and out of his love for us. It's remarkable. And so in this way, like I did not plan this, I am not this clever, but it, as I've worked on this talk during the week, like in some ways this talk is almost the compliment that rounds off the whole series from the first talk. Because what was the first talk? Thankfulness. The whole thing about thankfulness is it just orients us towards God as the giver. Is that not what happens as we think about our giving as well? Because whatever we give is only given from that which has been given to us by the giver, which is too many uses of that word in the one sentence. But you... It, it, it's just that compliment, it almost ties the whole thing off in a way that I couldn't have foreseen when we started this series. Lily. Uh, we we want to be a people who excel in the grace of giving, don't we? The only way we'll get there is if we first of all find our hearts here with Christ. So let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the Lord Jesus, who, though he was rich, became poor. And we didn't deserve that. And he did it so that we, who are naturally poor, might be made rich. And we didn't deserve that either. And so we pray that this gospel truth of what you have done for us as the great giver and provider might be the canopy under which we consider all our giving for whatever cause. And we pray that you would train us in the grace of giving and see that well up in us with exceeding joy. We pray it in Christ's name.